Hello, and welcome to the Downlink Podcast, brought to you by the University of Georgia's Small Satellite Research Laboratory. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking about the most satellites launched ever by INTIA, and we'll be talking about the first direct imaging of an exoplanet. I'm Graham Grable. I'm a mechanical engineering student here at the University of Georgia. Hey, I'm Paul Keith. I'm also a mechanical engineer student here at the University of Georgia. I'm Adam, and I'm a computer science and physics major here. So first, we'll start off with some general news around the lab and around the community. Today, uh, June 25th, 2016, the Athens Radio Club is, is putting on the annual field day where members of the community and of the ham radio community come together and compete with other local ham radio stations and communities to communicate with other ham radio operators. So it's a great opportunity for the public and ham radio operators alike to come on out and learn about radios and be part of the whole community. I know that a couple of us here at the lab are planning on going out to the field day, and we would love to see all of you guys there too. If you're around the Athens, Georgia area, It'll be lots of fun. Also, don't forget that we still have our Crown Funder, which is still live at the Georgia Funder. We have many different opportunities for you guys to get some of your own small satellite research laboratory gear and merchandise uh, throughout our crowdfunding campaign. You can go to smallsat.uga.edu slash funder for more information on that. I know we have t-shirts or plaques, and you can even get your name engraved on our satellite So depending on how much you guys donate, we'll be giving away those prizes and doing all that very soon. So we would love to have all that happen for you guys. I think we mentioned it last week that we have our lab stickers for Mochi. Um, If we didn't, uh, well, now you know. (laughs) But, But we're looking into how we are going to distribute those pretty soon. So be looking forward to that. So now that we've got all that out of the way, I guess we should talk a little bit about the space news and the CubeSat news of the week. I know last week we took a little bit of a break from talking about CubeSats, but now this week we have about 20-ish, so we've got our mouths full this week. So first I think we're going to be talking about the first imaging of an exoplanet. So Adam, do you have some information about that? This week we actually more or less put together the first actual picture of an exoplanet and the way we did that was there's this project i can't remember what the name of it is called but it basically takes a lot of dish satellites that are looking for radio light coming from everywhere in space there's one group that is taking trying to get all of these images from all across the globe and tie them together into one image image so what that basically does is with the help of software is turn we get a satellite dish about the size of earth which allows us to actually see exoplanets. And that's pretty amazing. We could have a telescope essentially the size of Earth. I think uh, the project name is the Very Large Telescope in Chile. I believe that's the main PI of the project of, of who found this exoplanet. I think it's pretty amazing, though, how we have Kepler and other satellite missions that are basically just looking at exoplanets by looking at them transit across stars, but now given if they're big enough and close enough, we can actually, through imaging, actually see what these exoplanets kind of look like. I mean, it's basically sort of just like our basic understanding of what Pluto was before New Horizons revealed all that cool and interesting information about it. Didn't you say that Pluto may have a liquid water ocean or something? 
Yeah, so I read on the internet earlier this week that some scientists have determined that there could be liquid water oceans underneath the surface of Pluto. And they determined this by actually taking a look at the geologic activity of Pluto and determined that either there has to be some type of exotic thing happening on the surface of Pluto to cause it, or it could actually be a liquid ocean underneath that icy surface that could be causing all that. So I think that's pretty amazing if it's true that something like a like an ocean could exist so far out in our solar system. So fun fact, the New Horizons mission, I watched a YouTube video on it, and for them to have New Horizons fly that close to P- Pluto, it would be about the equivalent of standing in Los Angeles, hitting a golf ball, and sinking it into a can in New York City. So transitioning into more about CubeSats, NanoRacks is one of the main suppliers of CubeSat deployment. And that company is actually has their own deployer on the International Space Station right now. But they are recently starting to integrate new experiments and payloads on the Blue Origin rocket launches. So I think it was quite recently, last week, that we saw one of Jeff Bezos' rockets actually go up into... Uh, into space and past the Kármán line and actually come back and land. So basically, if you don't know uh, what Blue Origin is doing, uh, the rocket is called New Shepard. And so basically, it's sort of just a very high-altitude rocket. So basically, it just goes straight up and comes back straight down. So unlike SpaceX, that's uh, going more into a low-Earth orbit type of trajectory, uh, Blue Origin is actually sort of being like a weather balloon or a sounding rocket, but it's actually supplying some scientific payloads and experiments. So this is a valuable way for CubeSats to actually develop a payload or develop a new system so they can test what will happen to those systems in a microgravity environment. So if you have an experiment with CubeSats or with a subsystem, uh, Blue Origin is really providing a surface there that really is valuable. So another emerging company is called Xcore Aerospace, and they are a company that's building new rocket-powered spacecraft. And quite recently on their Facebook page, they released some CAD photos of their new spacecraft, the Lynx. And I was actually taking a look at their CAD models and their CAD images, and it looks like they actually have CubeSat deployers, little pea pods on the near the back of the spacecraft itself. It's very neat to see how new spacecraft is actually integrating CubeSat technologies and the capability to deploy these CubeSats because of their just they're just so valuable to have and any launch opportunities uh, that arise, companies and organizations and individuals are really jumping on those opportunities. So. The, those Peapod deployers are actually uh, 2U deployers. Um, so 2U payloads would be able to uh, launch from the Lynx whenever the Lynx actually goes up into space. Recently, India launched the most satellites ever, 20 to 21, depending on how you decide to count them, on the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle. Pretty much these were just a bunch of small satellites, the majority of which were from the U.S. for a total of 13. 
12 of those are from Planet Labs, and they're their dub satellites. They kind of, when they get launched out, they spread out and look like a dub taking off. Yeah, I, th- I believe they call the, the constellation of their doves a flock. So, a little fun fact for you guys. And the last U.S. satellite was a larger satellite from Terra Bella, formerly part of Google. And pretty much it's up there to do more Earth imaging. Yeah, so I believe Terabella was uh, formerly underneath a different company name, um, but they were formerly affiliated with Google, and I believe uh, they split off during the whole big alphabet uh, Google type of stuff. I'm not exactly sure when they when that happened, but basically that company is uh, building satellites to do Earth imaging, very similar to what Planet Labs is doing. So Planet Labs is actually uh, really taking up any launch opportunities that they can with their flocks and their doves. So launching 13 of them on this launch is really quite a lot of satellites. Besides the 13 from the U.S., Canada launched one, and its name was Claire, and it is designed to study greenhouse gases from industrial areas. Now, this is more for a demonstration flight to prove that this technology actually works. Um, and if you really want to help them out, you can fund them on Kickstarter. Yeah, so Claire's actually going to be studying the greenhouse gases and all that from industrial areas. So you can imagine like factories or uh, power plants. Uh, you, we know that greenhouse gases are coming out from them, but we don't really have good sense on what that really means. So uh, the Claire mission is actually going to see if it's possible to study that data from low Earth orbit. And you can help them out with the full mission by going on their Kickstarter. The Germans also had a satellite on this. It was probably, I think, the most interesting one. And this is because this satellite actually holds another CubeSat inside of it, which it will launch. And this satellite is called BSAT-4. BSAT-4 is pretty much going to demonstrate the new reaction wheels for CubeSats to help advance along their ability to move around. Also, Indonesia... Is, has launched on that rocket uh, their Lapan A3 satellite. And this one is doing multispectral remote sensing, much like our Spock mission is. And finally, there were two other CubeSats on board that launch, uh, both by Indian universities. Sorry, I'm going to butcher the names, but one was called Sat, and it's a 2U and its main purpose is to measure atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gases. And their second one is called SWIUM. It's a 1U, and it'll show how the magnetic field can be used passively to control altitude. So it's really interesting to see how all these CubeSats and all these satellites are all able to be launched in one vehicle. Um, It's good to see how these Indonesian students are taking a look at new solutions for CubeSats. I think it'd be very cool if we could get around attitude control by using the magnetic field that way you could cut down on your mechanical and moving parts it's something that's definitely an issue now we've been looking into here at the lab of how do we minimize all the moving parts of a cubesat all right so kind of going off topic from cubesats and stuff um y'all have all seen or read the martian by now i really hope great book definitely recommend reading it so recently a dutch scientist announced on thursday um, he pretty much did an experiment with growing vegetables and different grains and soil that replicate that's like the Martian soil. And he found that provided the right nutrients being put into soil, the crops grow and the food is safe to eat. There's no heavy metal pickup 
or anything wrong. So this is something to look into for future space travel. Growing food on Mars soil. Who could say that? Though, probably get tired of potatoes. Well, just proves that Mark Watney could actually do it. So there's a lot of CubeSat and satellite missions that we talked about this week. Um, be sure if you want to learn a lot more about each mission and the little nuances of each one, uh, you can go to Google and make and you can actually find out more about each mission. I know that one valuable resource I've been using is Gunter's Space page. And so basically there you can actually find out more about the different missions and different CubeSats that have been launching up quite recently. I think that's all we have for you guys this week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Downlink, brought to you by the University of Georgia Small Satellite Research Laboratory. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at UGA Small Sat Lab. Until next time, over and out.